Well, after a few weeks off, I'm, I'm back and uh, tonight we start a new series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Um, let me begin by saying most of us probably haven't read the book of Isaiah as it's not a, a small book and it's not an easy book to read. But can I tell you, it is a book that is so rich. Uh, and there's so much for us to learn and to engage with. And we want you to really embrace yourself. Just We want you to immerse yourself in the book of Isaiah. So what we're going to be doing is not only on Sundays am I going to be preaching through Isaiah in your life groups. Uh, you're going to be working through Isaiah studies uh, alongside the sermon. So you're going to get a lot of that. And then on top of that, as a whole church, we're going to be doing um, daily Bible reading from Isaiah. And uh, I realized that we actually started it October 1. So everyone here is already behind. Jokes. Okay, by the time the sermon finishes tonight, you should be up to date. Um, and then you can catch up. And that's going to be really exciting. But as I do at the beginning of every new series, I ask my wife to come and pray for us. And then straight after that, we'll go into the introduction video. And that's a good one. So I'm going to invite my beautiful wife to come and pray for us. Let's pray, church. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this um, new series. Uh, We just pray that you will bless it, that you will use it, um, that you will just speak your truth to us um, through this uh, series in Isaiah. I pray that you will open our eyes um, and really enlighten our hearts and our minds and our souls, that we may become more like you and the way that you intended. Um, Lord, please, through this series, I pray that, yeah, just as we um, study it through multiple um, avenues, through um, the Sunday service, through life groups, through our own devotional reading, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us loud and clear, that you will really affirm to us that you are a God um, that saves, that there is nothing too hard for you, um, and that, Lord, that you are still sovereign and and king over all these things. Um, And even in the difficulties of the book, Lord, we pray that you will just give us greater wisdom and understanding to know your truth and who you are. So we thank you. We pray that you will really anoint Pastor Steve, that you'll pour out... um, Um, your favor and your wisdom upon him, that he may really just um, preach and teach faithfully um, and that we would have ears to hear um, and our hearts would be ready to receive and respond. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. King wields a sword of judgment by which he will save those who trust him. And Isaiah's book and ministry center around one moment in Isaiah's life where he actually encountered this king's divinity. Isaiah saw God Almighty seated on a throne while heavenly beings cried, Holy, Holy, Holy. And as Isaiah saw the enthroned Lord of hosts glistening strong and pristine, Isaiah heaped woes upon himself, for he knew he must perish for what he had seen, for he and his people were untrusting. And it seemed 
Isaiah was correct to predict the destruction of his soul. For like a sword of judgment, one of the heavenly beings carried from the heavenly altar's flaming bowl a holy burning coal with which he would touch Isaiah's lips and judge him for his sins. But the coal did not destroy Isaiah. Instead, it saved him. The king took away his guilt instead of bringing his destruction. And that is because of where the coal came from. It came from the altar where sins are atoned. It came from the place of sacrifice where judgment brings hope, where forgiveness is offered though punishment is owed. Isaiah's lips were made clean so that he might be a carrier of God's kingly decrees, which is why after being saved by judgment, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The message this king would have Isaiah bring is that God, the highest king, was going to bring salvation by wielding against Israel his sword of judgment. God's people needed Isaiah's vision because they were truly untrusting. They were worshiping false idols, oppressing the poor, and making faithless alliances with pagan countries. And this faithlessness and idolatry is most clearly seen in Ahaz, the king mentioned at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. He received word that an attack was mounting against him and Jerusalem, and his heart shook within him. So, in fear, instead of trusting in God's protection, he would go and seek the help of the evil Assyrians. But God sent Isaiah with a word of correction. If Ahaz trusted God, the attack would stop. He needed to believe that God sat on the highest throne and could easily foil their enemies' plots. But Ahaz would not listen to Isaiah's words. Instead, he went to the Assyrians, paid them for military aid, and trusted in earthly kings instead of Ahaz's heavenly king who could actually save. So Ahaz would be betrayed. God, the highest king, would use the very rulers they trusted in to wield against them his sword of judgment. But God would provide another leader whom Isaiah predicted, a king called Emmanuel, who would be hailed as wonderful counselor and prince of peace. And it seemed Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, might be that king. For he tore down the idols and broke his father's evil treaty. But what would happen when news of the advancing Assyrian army once again reached the ear of the king? Would he, like his father, seek the assistance of a foreign country? Would he put his trust in an alliance with Egypt? Or would he listen to Isaiah's prophetic wisdom? As Isaiah told his father, so he now told his son, if he trusted God as king, their enemies would be undone. 
Well, Hezekiah listened to God's words and put his trust in the highest king. He would succeed where his father failed. So God's sword of judgment miraculously turned against the Assyrian army camped outside the heart of Israel. But soon after, Hezekiah's trust fell back upon earthly rulers when he was visited by messengers from the king of Babylon. He boasted in his riches, all of which were given to him. He gloried in his wealth instead of God, his king, who deserved the recognition. And so Isaiah told him that as God sent the Assyrians, he would also send the Babylonians. God, the highest king, would use the very rulers they trusted in to wield against them his sword of judgment. For her kings would continue to be evil. They would continue to worship idols, oppress the poor and the widows, and fail to trust that God would prevail over their rivals. So through Isaiah, God speaks of great destruction and trials. Babylon and her great army would have an inevitable arrival. The sword of the Lord would destroy Israel and take them in to exile. The throne would be empty, the temple defiled. Yes, Israel would be punished. But with just as much assurance, God also promised to save his people through someone Isaiah called the servant. This is the same king spoken of to Ahaz and Hezekiah, the one who would be called Emmanuel, the one who would be God's Messiah. And the name we are given for this savior is Cyrus. This mighty Persian king whom Isaiah spoke of would bring Israel back into their land, for he would conquer Babylon and set them free. God would take the sword of judgment from Babylon and give it to Cyrus. God, the highest king, would defeat the very rulers they trusted in by wielding against them his sword of judgment. But Cyrus, like Hezekiah before, was not the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies about the servant of the Lord. Instead, Isaiah promised that God's final servant would save Israel in a way reminiscent of the coal placed on Isaiah's lips. As Isaiah was saved by the altar of sacrifice, so Israel would be saved through punishment. But unlike with the Assyrians and Babylonians, the sword of judgment would not come against them. Instead, God, the highest king, would use the very rulers they trusted in to wield against himself the sword of judgment. Jesus, the servant, would bear our transgressions. Jesus, the king, would take our afflictions. Upon Jesus, God would lay our iniquity. Upon Jesus would be our doom. For though we have gone astray, Jesus would heal us by his wounds.
wow. Imagine if my sermons were like that every week. <laughs> that was just the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah has got 66 chapters in it. And uh, we're not going to be going through chapter by chapter because we would be here till a very long time. Um, but we're going to go through this book over the next two months. And as you saw in the video, it's an action-packed book. Um, so many amazing themes uh, in this book. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to going through them. So who is Isaiah? Isaiah is a prophet. A prophet is a representative of God, and his role is to speak as God's uh, to God's people, uh, the Israelites, on behalf of God. And sadly, what when when God sees His own people, uh, it's not very good. God's people, the nation of Israel, has turned away from God and turned to their own ways. Uh, today, we begin in chapters one and the beginning part of chapter two, as we set the scene. And I've called this sermon Situation Analysis. You know, whenever you you turn up to something new, uh, before you jump yourself in there, you have to take a moment to analyze your situation. And that's what uh, chapters 1 and 2 are all about. And we're going to see what the situation is for Israel and what they have become. The first uh, thing that Israel has become is they have become a rebellious Israel. Uh, Isaiah 1, chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I read children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's ma- uh, manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. (coughs) Excuse me. Israel has become a rebellious nation. But not only have they rebelled against God, they have forsaken Him. They have turned away from Him. They have forgotten who God was. This is the God that saved them out of the nation of Egypt. Right? The book of Exodus talks about how God saved them from slavery. And yet the people of God have forgotten him, have forsaken him, and have turned to their own ways, their own sinful ways, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, some very strong accusations of who the Israelites have become. They are a rebellious Israel. Secondly, they have become a fake Israel. Isaiah 1, 11 to 14, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the, uh, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and vocations. 
I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So not only has Israel, the people of God, become a rebellious nation, but they have become fake. They have become a nation that has become all about doing the right thing, the rituals and the giving of sacrifices, but all of it is nothing more than just putting on a good show. They would give all these sacrifices at the temple. They would come and give their religious duties, and yet, Outside of that, their lives would be so far from God, so far from the character and the desires of God. And it's like they've done their moral duty by giving those sacrifices. Man, verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. This is God speaking to them. Stop just giving me your worthless worship, your fake worship, your superficial worship. doesn't mean anything. The Israelites were giving their fake worship and honor to God, and yet in the rest of their lives, they were forsaking him. They had become a fake Israel, a fake people of God. So a rebellious Israel a fake Israel, and finally, they had become a fallen Israel. Isaiah 1, 21 to 23. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. Once she was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels partnered with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's uh, case does not come before them. See, things in Israel weren't just bad. They had really hit rock bottom. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To be called rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah were were pretty much the worst insults because in the Old Testament, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were known as the absolute evil of evils. And God actually destroys these cities because of their sinfulness. But something that we we read is, is that Israel wasn't always like this. They were once for justice. And it wasn't just every man for themselves. Once they were the defenders of the fatherless, the poor and the widow, but now they were not. They were a fallen Israel. One of the things that we're going to learn about God or we know about God and we're going to learn more about God is the idea that God is just, meaning God is fair. If you obey him, he will bless you. If you disobey him, he will curse and punish you. That's what was set out for the people of God in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. And so when we see that the nation of Israel has hit rock bottom, they've become so rotten. What we're going to see is that the justice of God cannot be avoided in this situation. Sin must be punished. Disobedience must be punished. And we're going to see this through the book of Isaiah 
But we get a taste of this, even in this first passage, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. Why should you be bitten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burn with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Isaiah 1.15, when you spread out your hands in prayer I will hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers I am not listening your hands are full of blood this is Israel at its worst and the judgment or the justice of God which is the judgment of God is described right there in those verses it's not that they are just sinful it's not that they are just hit rock bottom But the justice of God is and will in the future catch up to them. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Isaiah. But if the justice of God is one of the big ideas of the book of Isaiah, equally as big is the idea of the the salvation of God. The people of God get themselves into trouble, but we see that God not only brings about justice, but he also brings about salvation. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24 to 31. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her purpose. Uh, penitent ones with righteousness. Verse 28, but rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. What we see in this this passage is the introduction of a really key idea, and it's the idea of fire. Now, there are two types of fire that is mentioned. Uh, One is a refining fire, and secondly, there is a destroying fire. A refining fire is used to remove all the impurities in a certain substance. The purpose of this fire would that through its heat, it would cleanse whatever whatever was inside that substance that was impure, that the substance would be made pure once again. That's a refining fire. Whereas a destroying fire is used to burn whatever the substance is completely away. That there would be nothing left after the fire had gone through. And we're going to see that God is going to use this same fire 
to achieve these two goals for the rebels and for the sinners. For the rebels and the sinners, the, the fire will be destroying. That they will be completely destroyed and perish. And that there will be nothing left but the ashes that fall to the ground. But for God's people, the ones that acknowledge Him and acknowledge their sinfulness, the fire will be not used to destroy them, but the fire will be used to refine them. To purge them of their sin and be made holy and pure once again. And this is the amazing work of God. That through the fire of God, that one would destroy and one would refine. That this is how justice and salvation come to work together. And God will do this, this work. He will come and do this work in his people. And that fire will either destroy or refine his people. And this section, it finishes in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, with a picture of what the future is going to look like. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is a picture of the end result of salvation. That the people of God would return to Him. They would acknowledge Him as Lord and King in their lives. And we're going to see how this plays out for the Israelites throughout the book of Isaiah. And more importantly, we're going to see how that plays out in your life. The whole series, uh, this sermon series, I've titled it, Our God Who Saves. Our God Who Saves. And we're going to see how the God of justice is also the God of salvation. One of the most amazing things that we see, even just in this passage, but we're going to see throughout this whole series is this, how God, through his justice, can save his people. How God can save the sinful and broken. See, God is just. He must punish sin. He must punish disobedience. And yet God is love. And he loves and wants to save his children. How does that come together? And the fulfillment of this is going to come through his son, Jesus. Now, this book is set in 739 to 681 BC. That's 681 years before Christ, before Jesus is even born on earth. And yet we see that a book written 681 years will prophesy and, and, and tell us that the Messiah is coming. 
that the, the, the tool of salvation is coming, that Jesus is coming, that he will be the fire that will destroy, but he will also be the fire that can cleanse us from our sins. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is the number one quoted book in the New Testament. And hopefully through our study in the book of Isaiah, we're going to see these quotes. And you've got to understand, this is 600, 700 years before Jesus even comes to earth. And yet, God is preempting. He is prophesying and saying, my son, the Messiah will come to save Now, as we begin this series today and as we have done a, a situation analysis on the nation of Israel, I want you to ask yourself, am I any different from what's been described about Israel? I want you to take a moment to do a personal situation analysis. Are you rebellious? Have you forsaken God? Does God have a, a role in your life? Or have you walked away from him? Do you trust in yourself more than you trust in God in your life? Or are you a fake worshiper? Are you someone that just does their religious duties just to tick it off in your week, I joined the live stream, I prayed today, I, I joined life group, tick, 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 and yet it's just all fake. It's all superficial. It doesn't actually mean anything. It doesn't transform your life. Or are you just so fallen, so broken, so far from God, that if you were to even try to find God, you wouldn't know where to start. If someone was to come to you and look at your life right now, and if they were to do a situation analysis about your life and your relationship with God, what would they see? What would they see? I think being in ministry... I know a lot of people, maybe it's because I'm the pastor. I ask them, how are you? How are things between you and God? And the picture they want to paint is one that is good, healthy. But I know. And it's the way you say it or the way you live your life. You're just giving me paper thin Correct answers, and yet it's not real. I wonder if you were humble enough, if you were ready to hear the real answer of what your life looks like in context between you and God. Let's use lockdown in the last, you know, four months. Four months. For most of us, we've been at home. You've had more time than ever before. Let me ask you, with that time, have you drawn closer to God? Have you spent that time learning more about God? 
Have you considered how to love others during that time? Or has it just been about you? Has it just been about, I need to survive? Has it just been about, I'm just going to relax? I'm just going to enjoy myself? Be honest. Just in the last four months, have you grown closer to God? Are you spending more time with God? Or has it been the other way? If we're honest, and I'm giving you the opportunity to do so, you've probably spent more time binging on TV shows in one week than the four months spent with God. Let's be honest. I'm not trying to butter you up. I'm not trying to discourage you. You know, I'm not trying to tell you that you need to come with some, you know, beautiful mask and say, no, 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 tick. You know, that's what Israel was like. They came and gave that fake worship. And what did God say to them? He found it disgusting. Where are you? Where are you with God? If you're listening to this right now, if you're tuned in right now, I'm going to assume that there is an element of connection between you and God. Maybe you don't know Him personally yet, but there's a desire. Or maybe you're on because of the religious duty and obligation. And if that's the case, then Isaiah is pretty much just a description of you. The Israelites are just a description of you. But it's okay to be honest because that's the starting point. In the same way that God must punish sin, God can also find a way to save you. No matter how broken, no matter how far you are, He can save you. You cannot save yourself. But he can save you. He can purge you from that sin through that fire, that fire that was meant to destroy you. He can use that fire to actually refine you so that you may go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of God. And we're going to see that God does this all through his son, Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he wields that sword, as was said in the video. He wields that sword of justice into himself to pay the price of justice for your sin. Here's the thing. You might be broken and rebellious. You might be fallen and fake. And that's okay because God can love and accept you for who you are. But you have to want God. That's the one thing that God can't do. He can't make you want him. He can't force you to want him. He can't force you to honor and worship him. That has to start with you. 
Isaiah 1, 18 and 20. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Friends, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God can do what you cannot, and that is to save you from your sin. He can make you white as snow. And we're going to see this over and over again throughout the book of Isaiah. And really, that's the foundation of our faith in the gospel, that you cannot save yourself from your sin. But Jesus, who died on the cross, can save you. He can be that refining fire and not the destroying fire. But you've got to want that. You've got to desire that. That's not something that God will impress upon you. That's your choice. And my prayer is this, as we begin this book of Isaiah, that you would have a very honest and sober view of yourself not inflated, not deflated, not super ego or lack of self-esteem, but to be able to look in the mirror and have a very honest view of yourself and realize that you are as broken and sinful and rebellious as Israel was. And it's not what Israel did to save themselves, but it's what the God of Israel did to save them. And that same God can save you through his son, Jesus. You've just got to want it. So that's my prayer, that as we begin this series, that that's what you would desire, God to be your Lord and Savior in your life. Let's pray.